0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The Journey from the Calling to the Confirmation. And I'm going to walk you through God's interaction with Abraham at four different stages. First, we're going to look at the call, God's call on Abraham. Then we're going to look at God's covenant with Abraham. Then we're going to go to the episode of God's correction of Abraham. And then finally, God's confirmation for Abraham. And the reason I want to do this is because I think we're going to see some application in this for our personal lives. I hope we do. That's what it's all about. It's about taking the Scripture and not only what does it say, but what is it saying to us. So in your journey of life, God's got a call, and I'm not just meaning a ministry call, a vocational call, a purpose call, and it can include those, but He's calling to people. That's the reason you're here today, because God called to you. And we will also understand that he establishes a covenant with us. Perhaps it's a covenant in general. Maybe it's not an individual covenant. But he establishes a covenant with us. Would you go to uh, Hebrews 11? As I've chosen a passage of Scripture, I think we'll set the tone for this uh, quite adequately. And starting in the 8th verse, it reads, "...by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, obeyed and went. And even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise." For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, when she was past the childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she had considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now the call, and we're familiar somewhat with the story of Abraham. Abraham's father is inspired, motivated to move out of the Ur of the Chaldees and go to this place called Canaan land. We don't know a lot about what inspired him to do that, but he was motivated to go. So he packs up his family, and they're going to leave. These are heathens. These are godless people. They're not necessarily moving in obedience to to God or any knowledge of him or any revelation. They're just moving. And Abraham has a brother, Haran, that by the time they get to a city called Haran, Haran dies in Haran, and leaves nephew Lot with Terah. Terah decides that the journey perhaps is too arduous, and before they ever reach Canaan land, they stop. And Terah puts down his stakes and says, "We're going no farther. I've taken the family far enough. It's cost us, my brother. We're done." God now takes over, and he speaks to Abraham. This heathen, this godless man. And this is where the story gets very fascinating for me because Abraham was made of a substance that responded to God that he didn't know and trusted him and proved to have this phenomenal faith. This all played out in his, in his life and following God. So here is God... Speaking to Abraham, and Abraham has enough sense about himself and enough faith to believe this really is God speaking to him and telling Abraham, which I'm, I don't want to be confusing, but at this time he's Abram. He's not Abraham yet. Speaking to him and saying, Abram, I want you to continue on and finish this journey. I indeed do want you to go to Canaan land. I've got some plans for you. And this is where God begins to reveal his plans and makes this covenant with Abraham. He's calling him out of total darkness, out of heathenism, out of spiritual nothingness. Now, weren't there any more godly people on the face of the earth at this time than Abraham? Weren't there some people a little more sympathetic to the idea, the notion, the understanding, the revelation of there was a God that walked with our forefathers with Adam and Eve. There was a God uh, with Noah. There, there, there is a God in this world. Weren't there anybody? Yes, there were. But why if there were more God-aware people in the world, would God go into the land of spiritual nothingness the land of heathens, and choose a man and put the call on his life. All we know is that that is a picture of God's love, his mercy, his grace. He could have chosen somebody more spiritually advanced and aware and prepared than Abraham, but he didn't. His call went to somebody that God was going to have to develop spiritually From zero. God didn't choose the other ones. In choosing Abraham, I believe we can understand he demonstrates his willingness to use anybody who will trust him. And maybe God saw that element in Abraham. Here's a man that will trust me. Not a man that is the most spiritual man. But here's a man that I can develop because he will obey me. And that's what Abraham proved over and over again in his life, is as God made him his choice, he knew how to trust God. So it doesn't make any difference where you are on the scale of spirituality today. God calls to people that he sees something else there. Does he see in you faithfulness? We just had the pastor's master's golf tournament Friday. And Scott Schaefer with the Quad City Prayer Center hosts this every year. And he tries to be an encouragement to pastors and and gives the statistics every year. 1,500 to 1,800 ministers dropping out of the ministry every month. Every month calling it quits, walking away, never coming back. And so he's trying to encourage. And I was talking privately with Scott. And he was saying, how are things going at Westside? I said, we're celebrating seven years there. I said, I don't have all the advantages of other ministers. I'm not seminary trained. I don't have a master's. I don't have a doctorate. I'm not tall and handsome. There's just a lot of things going on that I don't have all of the advantages. I don't have that charisma where I walk into a room and I light it up, and everybody flocks to me, I just lot. But I said, "Scott, I've got one thing, and it's something I have control over. I'm stubborn. I'm hard-headed, guilty. And I said, when God wants me to do something, I'm just stubborn and hard-headed enough. I'm just going to keep doing it and keep doing it until he doesn't let me do it anymore. And you know what? You don't have to have all the advantages. But if God can see a quality in you that you can stick to something, he'll use you. And that's why he used Abraham. God's a hunter. He's a seeker. He seeks the lost. We see that portrayed in Scripture. He's in the salvage business. And when Jesus passed by all of the self-righteous Pharisees, he didn't ask them to follow him. They were the religious people of the day. He zeroed in past all of the Pharisees and went and found Matthew, a tax collector, and said, you, you're the one I want. You come follow me. The Pharisees indignantly, subsequently, questioned Jesus, Why would you associate with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus, hearing their objection, tells them this. I love this answer. Those who are healthy do not need a doctor. I came to call not the righteous, but to call sinners. His call goes to the needy. God has a call. His calling is to the unworthy. His calling is to the lost. His calling is to the imperfect. Stick your hand up if you're imperfect. I'm a little concerned about some of you. His call is to humanity, and he wants to use you. Let's move quickly to the covenant. And we're aware of God telling Abram what he was going to do for him. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring you out of this land. I'm going to give you heirs, children, children's children. They're going to be so numerous. I'm just going to liken it to the sand of the sea, the stars of the sky. That, that's, a, that's a powerful analogy. That you're going to have all these people. I'll make you the father of nations, he says. He has this promise. In the 17th chapter of Genesis. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And I wanted to read this portion of it because the promise, the conditions are stated several times. We just have to find one of those times and focus in on it. But this time when God says it, he emphasizes not only what he's going to do for him, but he says, if you walk before me faithfully and blameless, then I will make my covenant between you and me and will greatly increase your numbers. Now, God's covenant with man is is always heavily weighted in favor of man. It's like God is getting the short end of the stick. It's like God is doing all the giving. But God's a generous God. He's a benevolent being. So with this covenant weighted in our favor, we notice God's not really demanding anything of material value from Abraham. What God demands from this man involves things like behavior and attitude. You know what God's asking from you? He's just asking for things that you can give, character things. That's what He's asking from you. Wouldn't this be an odd religion? If God were asking you to come in and sign the deed to your house over to His church? And there are some cults in this world that do things like that. Sign your earthly possessions over. This would be a very, very odd relationship with God. If we were to forced to turn our assets, our bank account, over to Him to follow Him. But God's not asking that. This is a reality moment. What He's asking you is just to modify your your behavior your attitude, to live it in such a way as it is decent and moral and it glorifies Him and it's good and it's right. That's all he's asking and anybody here can do that. Anybody here can do that. We've got some young people here sitting today listening to my sermon. What is it about serving God? What's it going to cost me? It doesn't, in a sense, we talk about it costs you everything but I don't want to be misleading. Because what it really costs you is just devoting yourself to God. I will choose God to live a holy life before you. That's all. That's a small price to pay because when you look at the other side of this contract and what God is giving you, if you are saved, if you are born again, if you're a child of God, you've got eternal life with God. That's... I mean, you bought that for cheap. The real price was paid by Jesus Christ. All you have to do is just live for him. Just serve him. That's simple. It's weighted in your favor. He asks us to live a life of self-discipline. And some people would rather not live a life of self-discipline. But what's wrong with self-discipline? You're healthier you're happier, things go better, just living a life of self-discipline. And not just self-discipline apart from the Bible, but within the context of the Bible. What does God want you to do? Well, you're going to find out that the, the deeper we get into this world at this age, uh, the more we're going to need some del- self-discipline because this world keeps redefining things and moving the boundaries and, and uh, redefining what is moral and what is immoral. Very few things are immoral anymore. We're moving into an age where everything is okay, just it's a perspective thing. If you think it's okay, just as long as you're not bothering me, it must be okay. But living a life of self-discipline means you don't take your cue from the world, you take your cue from God. So God has all of this he's offering to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your seed. You're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to be a wealthy man. I'm going to bless you so much, but all I want you to do is just be obedient to me. Deal? I mean, how can we even come close to comprehending this? Can we, can we adequately express this disparity in this covenant in human terms? Is, can we even come close when we try to say he's the billionaire? who picks up the penniless pauper and covenants with him and says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to split my wealth with you and you can split your pennies with me. What can the beggar possibly bring to the table? Is he the man in the tuxedo who exchanges clothes with the filthy homeless man off the streets? I'll take your clothes, you take my clothes. Is he the white collar executive who trades his briefcase for the ditch digger's shovel and says, you can go to work in my office. I'll dig this ditch today. Or is it kind of like showing up at a potluck with a can of beanie weenies and the man with the prime rib roast comes up and says, why don't we share today? Or maybe he's the man with the Rolls Royce who pulls up next to the man with a broken down Hugo on the side of the road and hands him the keys to his luxury cars and says, Take mine and go on. I'll get yours running and I'll take it for myself. And we think of all these things and we fantasize and say, Wouldn't that be fun if that really happened to me? It did happen to you. It did happen to you. Jesus came to you and he said, I notice that your load is a little bit heavy. I notice you are bending and breaking under the weight. I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll give you my yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Put the junk on me. I can handle it. We'll work together on this, but I'll pull 90% and you pull 10%. We're going to make it. Yes, he did it for you. Don't say, what would it be like if he did? He's already done it. He's the sinless one who took our place on Calvary. He took the punishment of our sins. We were guilty, but he paid the price. Number three, God's correction. In the 21st chapter of Genesis, we have this account of the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael. Just for a quick brush up, The story's rather lengthy, but I just want to kind of get us there in the theme of this story. In this covenant God made with Abraham, God promised to make Abraham a great nation, and he promised to multiply Abraham's children. So when Abraham is 75 years old, and his family began migrating out of the Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham now gets introduced to this promise, this covenant. Right there, God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is Abram. And Abram, as I said before his name change, Abram, without the extra uh, letters in there, and his wife Sarai, which is very close to Sarah, S-A-R-A-I instead of H at the end, Abram and Sarai, Abram's name meant high father or exalted father. That's about as close as we can get. And the Abraham, the A-B on the front, is uh, the part that we get like Abba from. When Jesus cried Abba, Father, it's, it, that's the part of this word that refers to fatherhood. So Abraham with the A-B is automatically a man that is exalted, a father that is exalted, which is kind of odd for a man who married a woman who can't have children. And his name is exalted father and he has no children and no hopes of ever having any children. So God comes to him and he says, we're going to fix this for you. I'm going to give you all kinds of children. Well, 11 years later, at age 86, Abram and Sarai begin to panic. They remember the promise of the Lord that God's going to give Abraham children that are innumerable and Sarah's beginning to worry because she is past her age of childbearing if she was ever able to bear children. Furthermore she's never been able to bear children. So it's a double whammy. It's like in her mind God even if you healed me I'm too old. It's just not going to work. So Sarah, bless her heart, she put a lot of thought into this, and she comes to Abram and says, "I think I have figured out how God is going to do this. He just needs a little help." Now, how many of you have been there before? You have thought and thought and thought, and you have strained your brain till you finally came up with the plan and say, "I." I know how God's going to do it. Now, I've got it. He just needs a little help. Sarah says, I'll give you my Egyptian handmaid. And through her, we will have children, and we'll call that child our own. And then we will be able to see the fulfillment of God's plan for our lives. Abraham, he's unsure of this, but, you know, he's game for anything. He's 86 years old. Looks like a plan. I don't see any other real plan happening here. And if we don't do something soon, it's going to be impossible because I'll be dead, then there will be no children. So all this rationalizing goes on. He has a child by Hagar. Now they're happy. The plan, you're going to have children, you're going to be the father of many nations, there's the child, Lord, we are are fulfilling your plan. And then one day, God comes to Abraham and says, now it's time for the plan. And Abraham is thinking, oops, he's gotten out ahead of God. He thought he already had the plan. What do you mean, God, it's time to fulfill the plan? I've got a son. That's not the one. I told you, you're going to bring forth a special son, and it's going to be through Sarah. Sarah's sitting in the tent, and she overhears this conversation, and she laughs out loud. God can hear her laughing in the tent. Well, God can hear you laughing wherever you are if you scoff at God's plan. Abraham is 99. Sarah is 90. And God comes to this decrepit couple and said, now we're going to have a baby. They have a child, Isaac. The promised child. And now that they see God's real plan, the old plan is a problem for them. Because you see, when you get your own plans going, and then God brings his plans, your old plans are in the way. And sometimes the plans you made become very annoying. Sometimes they are an an inhibition to your life. And you said, if I had just waited for God's plans. There's a lot of you people here today, you made your own plans without God's plans. And it messed you up. If I'd have just waited, if I'd have done things God's way. But your own plans threw monkey wrenches into your life. So they have two children now. One is the promised child, and this other one running around that Sarah just basically disowns. And she finds Ishmael poking fun at and mocking her own child, and all oh, the mother comes out in her. You know how that is. She goes to Abraham and said, get rid of that woman and that boy. Now! And Abraham goes to God and says, God, I don't know what to do. This is my son. But Sarah says they can't stay. And God says, do what Sarah says. You got to live with her. It's okay. I will bless Ishmael, be assured. And it's probably a very pathetic story as Abraham hugs his son. He's grown to love. Thought at one time this was the chosen son. Proved not to be, but he loved him very, very much. And packed him up a few provisions and watched him walk into the distance. It it, it had to be heartbreaking. And now they've rid the camp of their old problem. And God comes to uh, remind them of their 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 covenant. How he's 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 going to to uh, make them the father of many many multitude, uh, many many children. And God says, "I don't want you, Abraham, to be uh, Abram. I don't want you to be Abram anymore. I'll make you Abraham, which the name now means." Uh, the father of many nations. Not just an exalted father, but just a slight tweak in in the Hebrew, just changing it enough now to, to indicate you'd be the father of many nations. I want your name to reflect who you're going to be. Sarai, we're going to change your name to Sarah. Very minor. And we can't make too much out of the name changes. There's not a lot there. We'd like for there to be. Not a lot there. But it was just enough in that culture to understand that she went from being Sarai a princess, just a local princess, just a princess over her her family. Mom is queen, right? Everybody knows mom's queen, right? But she's not queen over any country. She's queen of the family. And so they changed it to Sarah, which means she would be the princess in a general sense. She would be the wife of the man. She would bring forth the son that would have all of these children. She would be the number one princess. And so the name expanded out her identity. Now he's the father of many nations and she's the princess of many nations. What's in a name? We don't put much in a name in our culture. If you walked up to me and asked me what Scott means, I don't know what it means. I know there's, a, there, there's a, a promise in Revelation in the letter to the Pergamos church that the overcomers are going to be given hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. And I think that's cool, but I'm not sure what it means. What's the significance of me having a new name? You know, I, Because our culture doesn't focus on that as much as they did. And it's not like I've spent my whole life just mesmerized by the promise and living this life for Jesus, saying, God, I can't wait for my white stone. I just can't wait. i got white stones everywhere. I can have them any day. So I don't understand the significance. But there's a significance there. What's in a name? There's more in a name than we understand. And I think if we can get a hold of this, we can be blessed by what the Scripture is trying to tell us. What's in a name? i i had a an ex marine a, a a big big man I, I guess he must have been six three perhaps uh, very broad shouldered ex marine come into my office, and he was already cross dressing and in the process of changing himself into a woman now folks. If anybody's going to do that, you ought to start off at least with a favorable frame. Otherwise, it's just no go. You know what I mean? Some men will never make a good woman no matter what they do to them. None of them make a good woman anyway. But, but some can make the transformation and fool everybody. This, this hunk is of, a, of, a, of a whatever is not going to fool anybody. And he come in there, and I'm not trying to poke fun. I promise you I'm not trying to poke fun. That would not be appropriate for me to do that. But he did come in there, and he had his dress on. And uh, uh, as embarrassing as is, I noticed he had his pantyhose on. And his high heel shoes... And his makeup, and he had grown his hair long and dyed it blonde. And he introduces himself, shakes my hand. His hand is twice the size of mine, and he says, my name is Lisa. And I have to call him Lisa through this whole conversation we're having. And that's difficult to do. I told you I'm not trying to poke fun, but I am trying to tell you this was difficult. I'm looking at this man twice my size That said, well, Lisa... It just doesn't feel right. And he's trying to raise enough money to go Iowa City and get all the plumbing changed. So he's now physically looking like a woman. And his main concern is, can I come to church? And I said, you would come to be welcome to come to church if you understand you know, how I feel about what you're doing and understand that from time to time I'll probably say something in a sermon that alludes to something that, that is relevant to your life and you might not be comfortable with but You can come. We will in- welcome you here, but we're not going to uh, uh, pr- approve of what you're doing. Well, his biggest deal was he said, just tell me one thing. He said, which bathroom should I use? I did not have an answer for that. What's in a name? There's a lot in a name. Now I'm beginning to see the significance of having the right name. He wanted a new name for his new identity. How many of you know the movie stars that have changed their name because they weren't going anywhere? Marion Morrison. He would have never went very far as a tough guy in Hollywood, so he changed his name to John Wayne. Henry Pratt didn't think his name was very compelling, so he changed it to Boris Karloff, those of the old spooky movies. Karen Johnson would have blended into the wallpaper, except she changed her name to Whoopi Goldberg. Now everybody knows Whoopi. And Frances Gum knew her name was not a charmer, so she became Judy Garland. Thomas Maypother became Tom Cruise. Cassius Clay... Al Sender had a new identity and joined with the Islam faith. And as new in their Muslim faith became respectively Muhammad Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We don't find Christians doing a lot of name changing. Our changes more, uh, our actions speak volumes. But if there is anything to our name change, There's a spiritual significance to our name change. And I would suggest to you that Satan knows that. Because he's been trying to hang names on you all your life. And I'm telling you, we don't need to settle for it. He's come to some of you and labeled you with his own tags. And he told you and whispered in your ear day after day and you begin to believe it. He called you loser. And eventually you began to believe you were nothing but a loser. He called you unwanted and maybe even influenced some of your friends and some of your family to convince you you're unwanted. And you begin to believe it. Nobody wants me. He called you weak. And you believed you were weak. You believe you can't win your spiritual battles because he's been calling you a weakling all your life. And now you begin to believe it. He calls you hopeless. He calls you ugly. He calls you unwanted. He calls you cheap. He calls you unworthy. He says you are inferior. Everybody's better than you. All of your peers have something going for you, but you have nothing going for you. You know, I don't like it. When Christians take on the wrong identity, and I'm going to get to nitpicking here a little bit, but I'm going to ask you just to consider for a minute. It upsets me when Christians' best testimony is this. I'm nothing but a sinner saved by grace. I don't like to stop there. I know where you came from. I know what you used to be, but I think you are selling yourself short is the Best you can say of yourself as I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm going to recommend you get a new creed. I think you are depressing everybody and you're depressing yourself. The blind man did not say, I'm just a blind man healed by God no he said I can see you, you may have been a sinner yesterday but when you're saved by God you've got to understand he did something for you other than just to make you a sinner saved by grace the blind man said I used to be blind now I can see I used to be a sinner I used to be lost but now I am saved take a vow get a better creed go something like this Why do not you try this once in a while i am a born again child of the most high why not try saying i am a new creation in jesus christ because that's biblical why not saying i've been adopted into royalty and i'm a child of the king because that's scriptural why not say i am an overcomer we are overcomers why not say I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength why not say I am redeemed by the blood of the lamb why not say I'm bought with a price I'm precious to God I'm forgiven of my past I'm sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all Paul said neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters nor the adulterers nor men who have sex with men nor thieves nor greedy nor drunkards nor slanders nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God but he says and that's what you used to be but you are washed you are sanctified you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God I'll be what God intended you to be no longer Abram no longer Sarai but you're going to be who I am going to find you to be And God says, you've made a mistake, Abraham. We're going to have to correct this. Paul talks about this casting out of Hagar and Ishmael. In the book of Galatians, he doesn't tell much of the background on the story. He assumes the reader knows the story, so he just quickly refers to it. He says, "What does the scripture say?" And by, at that point, you're supposed to know what the setup is: cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the bondwoman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Sarah's idea, but God agreed. There needed to be a correction, and maybe that's the point where some of you are today. Maybe you need a correction. Maybe you made a plan that brought so much complication that you just need the correction. God can do that. Sometimes you can't fix what you broke. Sometimes you just have to ply your way through it. But sometimes you can fix the correction. And when you can fix it, you need to fix it. But what you can do whether you can actually change the actual circumstances you're in or not, you can start with repentance. And maybe you've lived long enough with the wrong plan that you've just grown to decide that both you and I, you and God have, have processed it and, 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 and you're cool with it and God's cool with it and that's the way it is and you're going to get by it. But I wonder, can you remember the day when you actually knelt before Him and said, God, I blew it miserably. And you know I blew it and I know I blew it. And I just want to make it official today. I'm sorry God. I made a mistake. I made a mess. And just to make it official Lord. I repent. That you can do. That's bare minimum. Genuine repentance is active. It's not passive. The final point is this. That's God's confirmation. Somewhere around 15... 20 years later, after the birth of Isaac, making Abraham 115 to 120 years old, God comes to Abraham and he says, now take your chosen son, your child of promise, and pack up some wood and go to the mountain and sacrifice him to me. And this doesn't make any sense whatsoever to Abraham. We waited till I was 100 years old to have a child. And now, 15, 20 years later, you tell me to go and kill the child. And you told me this is the child through whom all the generations are coming. And he's not old enough. He's not married. He has no child. I don't understand it, God. I just don't understand it. And I want to tell you something. I've been there right with Abraham when I just didn't have a clue what God was trying to do. It made no sense whatsoever. It flew in the face of logic. But God knows what he's doing. And because God saw that in Abraham when he went into Haran, in that old country and picked him up. He saw something down deep in Abraham that knew that Abraham was a man that trusted and obeyed. And God brought him to this point in his life when God is thinking in the back of his mind, I know you can do this, Abraham. That's why I picked you. I know you can do this. Come on, Abraham, don't let me down now. And Abraham packed up his child and the wood, and he heads off. And the child's old enough to say, where are we going? Figure it out. We're making a sacrifice. And finally says, I see the wood. I see the altar. Where's the sacrifice? Talk about ripping the heart out of a father. And I can't even put this whole story together in my mind. How Isaac trusts his father so much to allow him to bind him with the ropes and lay him on, on the altar. If he didn't bind him, how is he just laid there? I, don't, I can't get my brain around this. But somehow, everybody was cooperating with this really weird plan. And it was in the process of lifting the knife that God provides a ram. And they hear the wrestling in the thicket. And they see the ram that is caught. And God had allowed Abraham to take it right to the brink to prove something. There had to be a confirmation. There had to be a confirmation. And I wonder how many of us allow God to take us that far to confirm our faith and our obedience to him. Sometimes we begin pulling back long before that. And I would say there are some of you here today that you've never been confirmed in your faith. Oh, you've got really good promises that you've made. Big swelling words. Lord, I'll do anything. You remember praying at the altar? I'll do anything, God. But the minute God asks you to do something a little inconvenient, you can't do it. You've never been taken to the point of confirmation. Until you've been taken to the point where you think it's going to cost you everything. And it's going to blow up the plan of God. Have you really been taken to the point where God says, now I know? And as far as Abraham went on that, Paul picked up on that. We know the attitude can be summarized no matter what went through Abraham's mind. Paul summarized Abraham in the fourth chapter of Romans. I love this passage. He says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He was strong in the faith, giving glory to God. That was the summary of Abraham's life. And the writer of Hebrews concerning Abraham says, When he was tried, he offered up Isaac. After that, he had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. That was the big test. And Paul said two different times. He said in the book of Galatians, and he said in the book of Romans, verbatim. He said that Abraham's faith was accounted unto him, credited unto him as what? Righteousness. Twice. Now, anytime the Bible says something twice, it means you have to take particular attention of what it said. Twice he said that in writing to different congregations. He wanted them to know this. Paul discovered a spiritual truth that excited him. In understanding this Old Testament story, it suddenly dawned on him that what Abraham did was a demonstration for the New Testament Christian that obedience will credit righteousness unto you. He doesn't want sacrifice. He wants what? obedience, Abraham went all the way with God and it was attributed, it was accredited to him for righteousness, obedience, obedience, obedience that's the word that Paul was hammering when your faith in God can be cast in for righteousness this is more than just believing that with God all things are possible this is believing God for the impossible And I wonder when the last time you have done that is. It's always easy to believe God for the things that if He doesn't pull it through, we can. But what about believing God for the things that we can't pull it through? We've committed ourselves. It was the fruit of the lesson that Abraham learned when he was 99 years old and Sarah was 90. And God says it's time. And God and and Sarah laughs. And that's when God says in the presence of Sarah and Abraham... Answer me one question. This is going to tell where you are. Answer me one question. Is there anything too hard for me? Your answer to that question defines who your God is. Let's settle the matter here and now. What kind of God are you serving? Is He the God of the impossible Or is he some weak figurehead that strains to compete with all the other idolatrous gods for a place on your mantle? What kind of God are you serving? Who is this God? Answer the question. Is there anything too hard for your God? If there is, you need to get a new God. You need my God. Because the trial you are going through, it could be God's confirmation test for you. If you're going to fold and give it up, you aren't passing. You aren't being confirmed. If you're going to quit just because you're facing some difficult times ahead, and I know there's people here today that are facing difficult times. I talked with a young man yesterday that was going through a difficult time. I said, you come to church. Let me pray for you. He said, I'm not ready to do that yet. I said, if you were sick, would you wait till you got well to go to the doctor? I got no answer. Is God able to do anything or not? Is there anything that is possible for your God? Because if you think there is, you need to meet my God. There's nothing too hard for God. If you're ready to see God do things in your life you never imagined, don't make God too small in your life. Stay home. Go fishing. Watch a movie. Quit wasting your time on a small God. But if you know He's bigger than all of your trials and all of your fears and all of your struggles and all of your disappointments and all of your complications, He is going to meet you right where you need Him. Is there anything too hard for your God? Not for mine.